Hey, everybody. How's it going? Thanks for joining me this evening. Have a great guest, uh, actually a returning guest from uh, very near the beginning of the channel. It's been quite a while, but I'm happy to have Paul Vanderclay back on. Paul, thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. Uh, Paul is a minister, and he also has an excellent YouTube channel talking about all kinds of stuff related to uh, religion, but also just philosophy, spirituality, understanding the world around us. Uh, sometimes it can reach into the political, but most of the time he's talking kind of about those subjects of understanding meaning and, and understanding the world. So make sure you're checking his stuff out. I've got links below to his Twitter and his channel. But tonight our focus is going to be on the topic of Christian nationalism. I know many of you guys have seen this just explode. The terminology has been everywhere recently. And there are a lot of people who are looking at it from different angles. They're thinking, okay, is this something that we should embrace? Is this something that we should worry about? Is this is this even biblical? There's a lot of people using this terminology to attack, but there are also people who are defending this terminology and saying this is something that we should embrace. So we're going to look at all that, but we're also going to look at just kind of the actual, you know, what, what does the Bible say about this? What, what does Christian tradition say about this and the interaction with the state and the church and and, uh, you know, what, what is a nation, that kind of thing. And so uh, uh, Paul's obviously going to be, he's uh, done a number of videos on this and, and is well-versed in, in kind of thoughts on this. So we're going to be taking a look at that. So first, Paul, what do you think when you hear Christian nationalism, when you hear this term being thrown around, what's the first thing that enters your mind? I think that people are unaware of the fact that Christian nationalism has been a nearly steady position in the United States ever since, even before its conception. The United States was founded by um, English separatists who wanted to establish a Christian colony somewhere under the umbrella of, of Britain. And then that has continued to evolve. Church going reached its peak during the Cold War. And all of the rhetoric around the nation was decidedly around America as a Christian country with a mission to the world. And in fact, what surprises me about the use of the term is that the more interesting question is how at least half of the political conversation went to an implicit Christian imperialism while tagging the other side and complaining about Christian nationalism, which has pretty much been with us the whole time. Interesting. So this is not some you know brand new concept that sim was simply birthed by Marjorie Taylor Greene and then Ron DeSantis, right? So one of my favorite illustrations of this comes from George Marston's book, The Secularization of the Academy, and he writes this. When Duke University was established in 1924, its founding bylaws stated, the aims of Duke University are to assert a faith in the eternal union of knowledge and religion set forth in the teachings and character of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Duke University. The founders built a massive Gothic chapel at the center. And you can look it up. It's a huge building at the center of the campus next to a well-endowed school of religion, which suggested a medieval pattern that placed theology alongside medicine and law as a preeminent professional faculty. Not until the 1960s did the new university give up required religious courses for its undergraduate. 
and they weren't alone. Yale, Princeton, go to almost any major campus and you will find at its center a cathedral. And just go to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. and pay attention to what's on the walls and in the stained glass windows. This has been a project in America all along. And what's interesting is that in the 60s, this began to change. But what replaced it is sort of a secularism, which has at its core kind of a subverted, quiet version of Christianity that is, in fact, imperialistic. And well, some might argue that this is a piece of the Ukrainian war because this vision of well-being continues to go out. It, it, it prevailed in the Second World War and has continued to go out throughout the world through colonial and now um, the kinds of patterns that we see in secularity. That's the story. And so then to suddenly tag people because they're making noises about God and country, it's like, this has always been the story in America. Have you ever heard the battle hymn of the Republic? Look at the lyrics. It's all here. So then to have people kind of set their hair on fire about this, just, I, I think, you know, have you read any history? <laughs> yeah. I, well, I think the key is they don't, they want a different history, right? I don't think it's that they don't know at the end of the day. I mean, I'm sure there are people who don't know, but I think a lot of them, <coughs> excuse me, understand that uh you know th that the history you're talking about exists and they want a new one right they want a different one before we get too deep into that though i want to touch on some things at the beginning of what you said there that i think we're i'm going to hear people kind of say uh, as we get going here they're going to say but paul all the founding fathers were deists right none of them actually were christians and so the founding is really some kind of you know uh, enlightenment uh you know referendum on christianity it's not an actual christian country it was meant to be separated from christianity i think that's a pivot you hear a lot of people make it's true that many of the founding fathers were deists but these deists ben franklin george washington continued to maintain relationships with the church if anything their deism and their cultural formation was sort of a Christian deism. I think when we think of deism today, we see it against a secular backdrop. And we imagine that, you know, it looks something like Sam Harris with a little God stuff sprinkled on top. But that's that's not at all what they were like. Um, they were they were different from, let's say, um, many of the New England Puritans, but that again had its own historical movement into New England transcendentalism. Unitarian churches, so on and so forth. So there's a huge history there, but it's, again, hard to argue that the Pilgrims, the Puritans, and the Quakers didn't settle this country for Christian reasons, even if their ideas about how exactly that would be lived out in the lives of the people might differ from, let's say, how we look at it today. So the Founding Fathers weren't read atheists. They had a little different uh, understanding there. Well, Thomas Jefferson didn't throw the Bible out. He just re-edited it. <laughs> well, and I think it's also important when you think about this to remember that, well, of course, the people writing the founding documents and forming the government are important. Like you said, they're not the only players, right? Like the vast majority of Americans were Christians. They had this background. This was their legitimate faith. They had no interest in deism or any of this. And so 
that this was still the majority culture of the vast majority of people in the country, even if a few of the guys who were involved in the writing the documents might have had a fuzzy version of it. Well, as I said, church attendance of regular Americans reached its peak in the 1960s and 70s. Even if um, some Americans weren't going to church in the colonial period and then in the early period of the United States, it doesn't mean that their primary formation and worldview was somehow atheistic. So, again, we hear this term now, the rise of uh, Christian nationalism. I think that we, we can probably get further into why it's being used, but I want to talk a little bit now that we have a kind of a, a basic understanding of that this history exists and it's a long tradition. What does, what does the Bible and Christian tradition have to say about the intersection of course of government and Christianity and then the formation of, of nations or, or, you know, other political uh, organization? That's a complex thing, partly because the term, the meaning of the terms continues to change. Right. What most of us live in today is a modern nation state, mm-hmm. which arises, you know, after the Protestant Reformation at the beginning of the modern period. That understanding of what a nation is was not present in the biblical age. What the Bible tends to focus on is you have when the Bible talks about ethne. Um, And that's the word in Greek in the New Testament about what a nation is, the ethne, the people. It's usually something along the lines of an ethnic tribal kingdom. And that kingdom might rise, let's say, during the period of David and Solomon to start to dominate the nations around them. And then you get into sort of an imperial pattern. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about those kinds of things. And part of what the Bible does do throughout time is sort of line up empires and looks at Egypt. If you read the book of Revelation, for example, you see Egypt, Babylon, Rome, sort of all lined up as these empires, which are depicted in the book of Daniel, for example, in Daniel 7, as beasts which arise out of the chaotic sea and eat up the little ethnes. And those are basically empires. And then, of course, towards the end of the book of Daniel, you'll see that a new kingdom comes, a new empire comes given to the Son of Man, and he rules the nations. And you find this kind of language in the Psalms. Um, but the, the, the formulization, how they thought of it was very different, partly because, again, you've got in Israel, you've got the king is the, in a sense, the son of God. You see that in the Psalms, that the king rules on earth in the place of God, or actually God in heaven rules through the king. And so all of those laws then are, you know, passed down through and enforced by the king. When you do Jesus in the Galilee and in Judea, you've got a case where God's holy land and God's holy people are being dominated by one of these beasts, which is Rome. But then when you get into Paul, I'm preaching right now through 1 Corinthians, you've got a situation where the community of Christ has sort of reconstituted Israel. Paul is trying to apply some, the Deuteronomic law in a certain way to the people, but he's very cognizant of the fact that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, where a man is sleeping with his stepmother, in Israel, something like this might have been punishable by death. 
in for Paul in Corinth, he says, put this person out of your community because the community itself is supposed to be a witness to the broader culture. And so then again, after that, when you get to Constantine, things will continue to change. So there's been a constant evolution and development of the relationship, let's say, between the self-conscious people of God and um, the surrounding nations. So maybe one way to look at it would be when Christians are a, a a part of a civilization, but they are not maybe the majority or they are not those dominating the political apparatus, then the approach was one of kind of community enforcement of standards and norms, but but following the law of you know the the land they were in, uh, the government they were under. But then in the situations in which those people were dominant or were in control of the government, it was commonplace to see the laws conform to a Christian worldview and, and it be enforced on that level as well. Well, one of the things that really surprises me is when I hear citizens of the United Kingdom complain about Christian nationalism and you say, now, wait a minute, the king is head of the church, head of the church. <laughs> and head of the country. That, by definition, is Christian nationalism. And so what you see in varying periods and varying forms is, let's say, a European monarchy where there will be a state church and the king, in a sense, is protector of the church and is supposed to reign in the nation as God would have them reign. Now, what happens in the Reformation period is that you get these these compromises where you've got all of this warfare between Catholics and Protestants, and then you get some of these situations where, for example, the, the prince in the province, let's say in the Holy Roman Empire, gets to determine the religion of his people. Mm -hmm. Now, over time, that's going to evolve, and you're going to have developed within secularization ideas such as religious liberty, which of course will get tried out in the Americas. But remember, these are all continued evolution of within Christendom of thinking about this. And now this, this sort of secular perspective, which in many ways has Christianity at its foundation, conquered the world, especially after the Second World War. And what we're beginning to see now with the rise of Islamic states, with, let's say, India getting more and more self-conscious about its Indian religious identity, and other groups, and you know, China perhaps thinking about how to use religion to further their means, Putin being very self-consciously orthodox and having his particular priest, what we're seeing is kind of a reversion to a post-secular age where we're probably going to see religions increasingly as tools of the state in order to promote the will of a particular leader. Yeah, I, I think that you're right that we're going to see that rise in general because we're simply seeing the collapse of the kind of the secular myth as a sustainable way to bind a, a people together, right? Like right. you're having a very hard time doing this anymore. You know, uh, Carl Schmidt said that trying to make a man die for his religion or his land or his family is 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 very normal making a man die for an economic zone is is a horrific uh sin against in nature and and god and i think it's really you know as we we went for this supra 
um, kind of binding mechanism, this cultural mechanism that would, would that would lay over the entire globe. We can get this minimum functional morality. We can have this universal identity based on you know the idea of secularity and 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 you know all the principles that go along with it. And it just seems like that's coming apart in multiple nations simultaneously. And I think in many ways, one of the reasons you see people attacking this terminology, well, first trying to assign it, but we'll talk about it in a second, but also attacking this terminology is they know that this is a danger to the project and they want to head it off at the pass, right? They, they want to smear it before kind of the obvious associations will be made and people move that direction. You know, in the United States, if you look at, let's say, the emergence after the Civil War, you can read Mark Knoll on this. The North completely conquers the South. And actually, Northern churches then and Northern ways of religion pretty much subvert then sort of the Southern institutions that, of course, had slavery built into them and built into the church. That continues to evolve. And that's that's definitely a sort of Protestantism. But because in America, Protestantism had always been fractured, you see this sort of um, Protestantism itself arise in the United States. And that holds sway really into the, into the 1920s and 30s when you have the modernist fundamentalist fights. And then really in the 40s under, under Roosevelt, Roosevelt sort of broadens it into Protestant Catholic Jew and the Catholics and the Jewish communities are sort of brought into it. Now, it's helpful to remember that the Ku Klux Klan didn't just assault African-Americans in the South. They also hated Jews and Catholics. And it shows the nature of this. Now, since the, the Second World War, there has been an attempt to sort of continue to broaden this out. And so basically what you see is especially during the civil rights movement, you had a massive shift in the main line, which has been going away. Um, you've, you've got this, we're saying, okay, well, this, this isn't religion. This is just morality. Mm -hmm. But there's, I mean, Tom Holland's work really is helpful on this, where you begin to say, but, but where is this morality from? It's disconnected from its Christian roots, but that's where it all came from. And now suddenly when you say, well, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist or any of these things, we all share this morality. Well, if, if you were a Hindu or a Buddhist, you might look at that and say, now, wait a minute, um, doesn't my religious tradition, I mean, what happened to the caste system? And that all just goes away because of, you know, deep strains of, of Christianity that again, have been basically resetting the world's moral imagination. Yeah, I, I think you were talking about the morph into Christian imperialism or, or a detached version of that. And of course, many people have talked about that. I think Tom Holland, as you mentioned in his book, um, uh, Dominion, almost speaks of it approvingly, you know, that, that all these different movements are basically secularized Christianity and all the things that he finds to be the center of his morality are those things many people would find that maybe bad right a lot a lot of people would, would find a problem with that of course curtis yarvin also famously makes this argument so there, there's a lot of different people who have uh, come at this from different angles and and made that 
that assertion. So here's a question before we even get deeper into Christian nationalism. The question is, is this the doom of Christianity as an organizing principle that it will eventually universalize to the point where it separates itself from the actual Christianity and just has kind of these, uh, you know, these free floating values that can then kind of be used to homogenize uh, and imperialize kind of other cultures, other, other areas. I, I think at least at this point, we've probably seen peak secularity and the fact that it is in fact receding around the world in some ways, that's going to be very uncomfortable for the West, I think. And and we've seen the beginnings of it, obviously, with, with resurgent Islamism. Mm. I tend to think that once cut off from the roots, we're going to see these disconnected religions go into often um, spaces where things will just get so disorganized, they'll come apart. And I think we're already beginning to see that in some wokish areas. Um, the different little tribes don't have a narrative that helps bind them. They may be together if they have one enemy that they sort of coalesce against, but most of these things will probably be in the long run unstable. And I think what we will probably see is we'll continue to see resurgent Christianity, which I think if you look very closely through history, for example, before a, a decade or so before the French Revolution, there was sort of a revival of Catholicism in France. Uh, churches were built, people were going back to church. And in fact, very close, very close readings throughout history show that there's been lots of ups and downs in terms of religiosity and self-conscious Christianity. You see this in American history of the first and second great awakenings. And again, you have this resurgence during the Cold War. And now we seem to be in a, a dip. But I think we're going to see another rise in self-conscious Christianity. Now, a lot of people are, like you said, are, are, are preemptively attacking this concept. And I think that's why we saw it explode, right? I don't think a lot of Christians were honestly talking about Christian nationalism two years ago. I don't think there was a lot of discussion on that topic. Would uh, I'm just speculating here, of course, but would you would you think uh, agree with me, perhaps, that th this there was a reason that this terminology suddenly exploded into the mainstream imagination that we started seeing this uh, this term in particular getting used in mainstream headlines and getting assigned to particular political movements? This movement to I mean, Christian nationalism as a meme is new. Mm -hmm. But if you if I mean, I've spent most of my most of my life in theologically conservative, but politically progressive Christian communities. And you can find those among the Reformed, among the Anabaptists. Jim Jim Wallace didn't just pop out of the ground like a daisy one day. I mean, he'd been at this. He's probably in his 70s or 80s now. He's been at this for a long time. Sojourners has been around for a long time. Ever since the 60s, there have been various Christian groups that have been critical of sort of an easy wedding um, that you saw during the Cold War between Christianity and government power. And so there were a number of countercultural groups. Um, there have also been other groups that have been, that have seen, let's say, flags in a Christian sanctuary as offensive because 
that's God's space and the nation comes under God. So, you know, one not ought to sing these um, you know, America the beautiful in the context of a church service because that's idolatrous because God comes before country. And these conversations have been going on and that they tend to they tend to get pushed, let's say, we saw it during the Reagan administration. We saw it during the George W. Bush administration, particularly because partly because Karl Rove figured out that if they could really carry the evangelical vote, they could win the elections. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen this go up and down and up and down, usually depending on who's coming into office. But what's a little more unusual is to see this rising during, let's say, a Democratic um presidency, especially someone who is, you know, Biden is Roman Catholic. And so, which is something that's tremendously ironic because Ronald Reagan, who wasn't particularly known for his church going, Jimmy Carter, who was, Joe Biden, who is known for his, um, you know, whatever you think of his relationship with, you know, Catholic teaching about the family, is known as a practicing Catholic. Um, Christian nationalism, he's a Catholic. So the the rise of this meme, I think, is partly generated. I think it's it's often perpetuated by usually Christians who are probably moderate um, but politically progressive, and they see this as really an easy meme to sort of perpetrate, especially given you know some of the some of what has been a pretty standard depiction that has arisen in the American press since Jimmy Carter of people who read the Bible vote Republican. Um, survey after survey show that among churchgoers in America, at least, I don't know if that's true, but at least over the last 15, 20 years, they're almost 50% Democratic voting and 50% Republican voting. And so this theme that we've seen in the media again and again, especially since George W. Bush, has sort of set the ground world. And then somewhere, someone came up with the meme and off it went. Well, I think it's particularly getting linked to efforts to more effectively pass legislation that that has a what we think of as a more traditional moral bent, right? Like this is this is what we're seeing. It's the the biggest thrust against it. The the thing that we get the panic is, well, you know, all of a sudden there we're we're gonna get the Handmaid's Tale, right? All of a sudden these crazy Christian nationalists they want to pass laws and they want to you know stop you know I don't know transitioning of eight year olds that kind of thing. And this is just the beginning. Uh, you know, very soon you know women won't have rights. They won't be able to vote. They'll be chained to a radiator somewhere. Uh, you know, and, and and so what we see, and and one of the attacks we see the most, which I hope you know, you'll you'll speak a little bit on, is it's unbiblical, right? There, you can't the, the the idea that any legislation would reflect biblical morality is unbiblical. Uh, it, that that's something where we get thrown see thrown around, especially by a lot of the more progressive uh, Christians that you're talking about. Yeah. What, so the the meme during the George W. Bush administration was theocracy. Mm -hmm. that George W. Bush is going to institute a theocracy and take away non-Christians' rights. Um, atheist communities have been talking this way for a very long time. The the so we live in a representative um, 
you know, we live in a constitutional representative democracy where people get to elect officials who represent their values to put into laws um, the will of the voter. That's that's the idea behind a democracy. And you don't find democratic institutions in the Bible very often. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might find hints of it in, in certain aspects, but a lot of this arose again during the Protestant Reformation. And in many ways, democracy, the modern democracy is a child of Protestantism. So why would it be unfair for people to vote in candidates who want what they want? People don't have a problem, let's say, an Islamic community in Michigan voting in a representative from who goes to mosque. This has been a standard part of the idea behind America, really, since Roosevelt. Um, everyone, and you can find the Norman Rockwell painting, you know, basically each according to their creed or conscience. And this, this is a longstanding idea. People tend to complain when it's legislation they don't like. Yeah, and of course, yeah, we're seeing that a lot with a lot of uh, you know protecting democracy. You know, it's 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 fascist to to vote for the wrong party. Uh, so there there's only one party that can have democracy. But but I do want to address specifically the charge of it being unbiblical. I, I think there's an obvious answer here. But is it unbiblical to vote for people who might enact a law that aligns with your understanding of scripture? I I can't see why it would be. You're free to you're free to vote for whomever you think would do the job best. I, the Bible doesn't weigh in on this. It's mm-hmm. simply the tenet of democracy. And if right. you're a Christian, so I often say that religion is always and politics is now. People are going to vote from their religious values, and that's going to be across the board. Now, part of why this gets difficult is again the way secularity was set up usually. You know, sort of as a way to deal with the the long wars between Protestants and Catholics, and then different kinds of Protestants, but also different kinds of Catholics, was okay. We're going to sort of give the state a monopoly of power, and we're going to let people decide what kind of governance they have within limits, so that minorities are not oppressed. But you know, even look at let's say laws against prostitution in the United States. Um, People have long been voting their values. Prostitution was legal in many parts of the West, for example, for a very long time and still is in Nevada. Um, Local groups vote for the government and the situation they want, and the Constitution is supposed to sort of regulate that and put it within limits. And I don't think there's, I I think people are, are going to vote out their religious ideas because religion is always just sort of a part of the substrata of how people approach the world. Yeah, I think that's unavoidable, and and it's we're playing a bunch of uh, we're playing a bunch of hide the ball with with the actual motivations of a lot of people when it comes to the you know, the imposition of values. Obviously, like all legislation is ultimately the imposition of values, and it's going to be someone's. And if it's not Christian, it's going to be something else. I think a lot of people watching this are are pretty familiar with that, so we don't we don't have to beat that point to death. But I did want to talk now about the embracing of the meme because we've talked about you've separated the the historicity of christian nationalism and the fact that that's simply part of the american experience 
from the current meme that's being put out there. Like I said, even, even though, as you've pointed out, there, this has been a debate that's been ongoing for, for many, many you know decades, if not centuries, there is a specific context where it's being used now. And I see some Christians rushing to uh, embrace it. Some Christians saying, well, if, if they're going to call us this, then we should completely go in all in on this. You know, the, yes, it's okay for us to vote our values. Yes, it's okay to want a nation with Christianity at the center of its understanding of identity and, 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 and law and those kind of things. And we should just embrace this terminology. Others saying they manufactured this term for a reason. They want to elicit a particular kind of movement so that they can frame it a certain way. And we might want to think twice while embracing that there are truths inside the phrase Christian nationalism. We might want to be careful about how we approach that terminology. If someone, you know, from your congregation set up, you know, said, hey, we need to go all in on Christian nationalism. What, what would you tell them about that? How, how would you ex express, you know, your understanding of kind of what they should move forward with that? I'd probably tell them to stop it. Yeah. And I don't think anybody in my church would do that, partly mm -hmm. because my church is kind of split down the middle. I'd say probably half of my church votes Democratic in elections and half of my church votes Republican. And this has been the case the whole time I've been here. And we all do get along and we don't push politics in church. We don't push particular issues in church. Um, if people want to talk about those issues, they can, but for the most part, they don't, because what we do in church is we worship God, we do Bible studies, issues will come up, but for the most part, um, you know, we don't, and, 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 you know, I'm in Sacramento, people in my church working in the government and in fact, working as staffers for politicians is a very common occupation in my church. So in that sense, my church should be highly political, but I think part of the reason that doesn't spill over is because for many people, because they work in politics, part of them understands the game. They do have their values. They do express their values with their votes, but they also understand that politicians come and go, um, issues come and go. And many of the members of my church that have worked for decades in government offices know that administrations come and go and that in many political institutions, other factors within the culture of the state, within the bureaucracy of the state also impact what comes out. And a lot of this, a lot of these memes that come and go, they come and they go. And for the most part, you don't want them wrecking your life or wrecking your relationships. Yeah, it's it's tricky because I think that's the right attitude. And I think that it's necessary for people to have a concept of the sacred for something that is set apart from the political that is not subject to those things. At the same time, I fear that, again, Schmidt is right that because while the political enters this kind of domain, there's really no way to avoid it consuming these things until the question has been solved. I think a lot of people, again, and I'm just speaking for myself here. I'm not speaking for you. 
but but I uh, but I think again we have a very similar situation in my church, and I think a lot of people, while I want that reality to say as you described it, I think lines are going to get drawn that are too drastic for churches to stay entirely politically neutral. I mean, once you're kind of at the point of supporting the state is or supporting a political party is supporting the removal of children from their parents who aren't willing to transition them, which we literally just saw happen in Indiana. I think it's hard for the church to stay politically neutral, you know, in the, in those areas and continue to be a voice of leadership. Right. And that doesn't mean you need to embrace. I think you're absolutely right. That embracing the political constantly is a huge mistake for churches. Um, But I think there are areas in which it simply becomes impossible when things get distinct enough to pretend that like both sides are just, you know, that's, it's more or less the same. Right. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that the Mm -hmm. question, at least for a pastor is what do we do in this space? And during this time, I don't expect my people to not have political opinions. Part of being a democracy is having political opinions and having those opinions tolerated from both sides. And so, but in the church space, we're not playing that game. And I think, I mean, Jordan Peterson, I think has had a number of guests on, has made the point strongly that if you if you don't have a pretty vigorous substantive idea of the, of the always, your now slips up into it and your politics becomes your religion. And so many of the people in my church are by no means non-political as persons, but, you know, I encourage them to vote and participate in politics. And of course, if they hear me preach about things, they will have ideas that can be applied for their political life, but I'm not going to act like they're morons and and tell them exactly how it must be applied or who they must vote for. Yeah, you won't and be handing out the sample ballot ballot there at the yeah. Somebody, somebody always come to this church and you know put a pile of sample ballots on the doorstep and I will throw them in the recycle bin every year. We're not going to play that game. But that doesn't mean, obviously, that our religion won't inform how we behave in the political sphere. But it's a separate sphere, even though they are deeply connected. Yeah, could you could you expand a little more on that? Because I think it's a really important concept that is difficult for a lot of people uh, to, to grasp. What? How does one take a sphere of of the sacred the, the and and have it inform and interact with something like the political or the marketplace it doesn't just have to be politics while while still allowing it to remain separate separate and untainted by those things uh, what what is the key to understanding like you said the difference between kind of the always and the now and that they're going to intersect and inform each other but that it's why it's important to keep them them separate what what the 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 core purpose of that is well part of my tradition in the dutch calvinist tradition is some of the thought of abram kuyper who ironically both led a separatist movement out of the state church as a clergyman and was eventually at the beginning of the 20th century elected as prime minister of the netherlands so here's a guy that worked in both spheres but he had, he had some ideas of what he called sphere sovereignty, where he said different institutions ought to govern different areas of life. For example, in my tradition, in the Dutch Calvinist tradition, 
There are a lot of Christian day schools around the country, but they are not clergy or church owned or led. They're led by parents who come together and run the school. <laughs> the, the minister doesn't run the school. That's different from, let's say, a Catholic structure where the schools are somehow included in the diocese and under the priest. And so according to Kuiper, different institutions govern different areas of life. And it takes a degree of self-control by all of the institutions not to get in the other institutions' lanes. Yet underneath all of this, there clearly will be the communication of values. And if, in fact, you are worshiping God, if you are turning to the Bible as God's word, and if you're trying to apply that in your life, well, that obviously is going to trickle down. But now you're going to find people that do it slightly differently. And hopefully, if they can at least agree on something in common, such as the Bible and a theological tradition, they can have um, at least a common language and some common values through which to try to apply these ideas under other institutions. And so within the Christian Reformed Church, for example, uh, Kyperians have been institution builders. You have the church, you have schools, you have retirement communities. And again, not owned by the church, not run by the church, but run by people who have expertise in that area. And, um, and then also the people who are being served by that area. And so a, a lot of it is a tradition that says the we're not looking for a philosopher preacher to run everything because the truth is most preachers maybe don't even run churches so well, not you know, much less the country. So um, one thing, sorry, I had something I was going to follow up with there. Oh yes. Okay. So the spheres, the, the, the different areas of the spheres, I, I think is, is very important because one of the things that I've I've done videos on and I've written on is the um, is Bertrand de Juvenal's discussion of uh, in on power about the social spheres and he talks of, in very similar terms about what you're talking about the, the the governance of these different areas of life and one of the things he points out is that that diversity of different um, of kind of sovereign spheres kept the the power of the state from growing omnipresent right right when you when you owe a, a a large amount of your loyalty and your well-being to your church and to your family and your community your tribe your your uh your guild you know when you have all these different associations the state can only ask so much of you because right. at the end of the day it can only do so much for of you but as those other spheres shrink the state takes on their responsibilities and because it takes on their responsibilities, it also takes on their authority. And so without the, those kind of sacred boundaries between those different spheres, you will inevitably see th their contraction and the growth of the state, uh, which, which as I think is, you know, what we're seeing now is the disaster of, you know, everyone thinks, Oh, well, now that the state educates my children, I have more time. I have more money. Now that the state takes care of my parents when they get old, I don't have to do that. Now that the state, you know, uh, you know, uh, takes care of the homeless or whoever, I don't have to donate to the church or put the time in to take care of those things because those problems are done for me. And not only do those things not get done now or get done much worse, but the state also takes all that power onto it. And so I think it's really important for people to grasp that if if we don't return to, a, to if you if you like smaller government 
or if you like the idea of reducing the power of the Leviathan, one of the things you need is a something like the church that can step in and mediate social uh, situations without the authority of the state. That's right. That's right. And part of what we've seen is exactly what you talked about, but let's not forget some other dominant institutions. One would be um, you know, mass media, and now we're seeing mass media fractured by the internet that gives us sort of micromedias and you know, all these little spaces that are developing now because of the internet. And, and then also the commercial space. You know, we're we're seeing we're seeing corporations grow consciences. Now it's it's not necessarily a bad thing for a corporation to grow a conscience. Um, there were there was in the 19th century with sort of the rise of industrialization, there were some mill town owners that were in some ways benevolent despots for their factory workers, and one would certainly rather have a benevolent despot than a Machiavellian than, than a horrible despot. But um, government then sort of arose to sort of challenge. I mean, you had the um, you had the trust busters at the beginning of the 20th century and dealing with that. And so we very much do live in a very live a live situation. And you're right that if one one of the things that I think has served America has been the fact that right from the start, America had, at least within Protestantism, a fair amount of diversity. And what that allowed for was sort of the state to hold back in a way that you didn't have in Europe where you had these state churches. And so, you know, and, and there's a lot you could argue between the different systems. But I think you're right that when when churches get weak, government will tend to continue to expand and get out of their spheres and probably not do well. I mean, that, that's part of the, the idea behind sphere sovereignty is that when people are out of their spheres, which might have a lot to do with expertise, they don't do well and institutions don't perform well. So no, these are these are big concerns. And people who are sort of cheering the end of the church probably aren't considering what happens when your government becomes your church, because that then then it can get really tyrannical. And then then yeah, you look for biblical images. Well, there are a lot of biblical images about that. And there were, you know, for example, the one of the fastest growing cults at the time of Christ was the cult of the Emperor Augustus. Mm -hmm. That was spreading all throughout the Roman world. And you see images of that in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation. Um, you know, you have Empire Egypt where Pharaoh is a god. And so states have long known that you can derive a tremendous amount of power if the state and the religion are all one and the state can wield religion as a tool for basically whoever's in charge of the state getting its way with the people. And so, no, I, I agree. I think strong churches are essential for a, a schema that we've enjoyed in the West and in the United States, I think, for quite a while, where government stays limited because there are other active, powerful players on the scene. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to understand because uh, the, the distinction you make there with like a god emperor and then like a stronger state because because for instance I, I might you know favor a stronger state than many people but i want that state to be balanced by spheres of personal responsibility and community responsibility and 
like, you know, in church and such that would be independent from that stronger state, as opposed to a state that has been completely centralized, you know, and turned, like you said, the church into nothing but a function of that emperor as deified that, you know, that king or that strong state, which I think is, is a separate thing um, than, than maybe necessarily uh, simply having a, a state that takes a, a role that most secular people probably wouldn't find uh, to their liking currently. Um, so, so I do think it's important to understand that th there can be relationships with the church and the state that are, uh, that are cooperative and useful and good for the people without uh, the, the church and the state being unified into one God emperor style, you know, uh, personification of that. People not, might not remember, but um, George W. Bush, in fact, launched a bunch of programs where they could sort of cross the church-state barrier and actually um, support churches doing their work of well-being in communities. And then when Obama came into office, he actually tried to continue that program. And so, you know, both both parties have tried it to one degree or another. I think many of us in the church sphere recognize that in many ways to keep the state out is to our benefit because once the church for example gets dependent on state monies to function well then suddenly new requirements are going to come in for those monies i think we've seen some of that with christian colleges and the student um you know, the student aid programs, whereas some Christian colleges have decided to say, forego it completely, it's a little bit more difficult because obviously you don't have that financial support coming through, but the independence from the state is is quite helpful if the school, so if you're looking for biblical examples, look at the Old Testament prophets, because again, you have a situation where you have a monarchy, and in that sense, the king is is implementing the will of the will of God, or let's say in the case of the Northern Kingdom, where you have Jezebel coming in and Tyrion Baal, um, you know, he doesn't like the prophet Elijah. And well, why, why don't you like Elijah? Because he tells me things I don't like to hear. Well, this is, this is the function that you want if you have a functioning religious community that is able to tell the state things the state doesn't want to hear, and the state just has to tolerate it. And even though we do a lot of complaining in the United States. I think even if you compare us to, let's say, even very similar societies like Canada, Australia, or Great Britain, you know, part of what we have here in the United States is the First Amendment, which is very deep in the constitutional structure, and it gives church, you know, for example, we saw this during COVID. Some churches, you know, whether or not you agree or disagree with them, said, hey, the state cannot keep us from congregating as we see fit. And by virtue of the First Amendment, the state of California, for example, had to back off. And that just says something that our system is pretty well thought through and robust, partly because our founding fathers, by virtue of their resistance to England, wrote a system that said state power should be limited and curtailed by other interests in society. And I think we should be able to thank God for that. Yeah, I might disagree with you with the effectiveness, unfortunately, of some of that. If, but I've gone into quite a bit of detail, uh, so people can can find that. We don't have to hash that out. Uh, it's here. always under threat. You of know, course. if you look yes. during the First World War, um, during various wars, I mean, it's constantly under threat. But at least there's something. <laughs>
<laughs> it certainly slows some things down, which which might be as much as you can ask in some situations. All right. Uh, so do you mind if we take a few questions here from, nope, uh, from our Super Chats? All right. So we'll go ahead and get our Super Chats real quick here. Guys, if you have any questions, you can go ahead and get those up. And Paul and I will try to get to him here before he has to get out of here. So uh, let's see. We've got uh, the distributist here uh for two dollars thank you very much davy says uh, we'll watch later big fan of paul's work absolutely we all are thank you very much sir yeah, big fan of the great channel as well he does everyone should definitely i'm sure everyone here has already seen the distributors but just in case we'll get our distributor shill in here all right so uh heath for ten dollars he says the sin of idolatry of the founders has come to roost we've hurt our christian cause in uh this usa by constantly appealing to the founders rather than the bible or even founding settlers' beliefs. I'll say this, uh, Paul, I have uh, done a good bit of writing on this. I, I think it's true, and maybe this isn't the founders' fault themselves, but I think it's true that uh, to a large extent, we have replaced uh, kind of our uh, Christianity with kind of this easier to absorb uh, deification of the Constitution and the founding fathers. In many ways, you know, they have the Christian values, but they are, it's, it doesn't have that scary theocracy, you know, smell to it uh, for a lot of people, even on the right. A lot of conservatives are much more comfortable with founding father constitutional America than they are with Christian America. What do you think about that? If you go into the Lincoln Memorial, it calls itself a temple. Robert Bella did a lot of good writing on this during the Kennedy administration. Just Google um, Robert Bella civil religion and his essay is still freely available online. These are old issues and people are going to get their, their religion and politics connected. In some mm. ways, the state has been in many ways sort of a substitute church for a lot of people. No, I think that's absolutely true. Let me make sure I'm grabbing this so I get all of the right super chance here. There we go. All right, so uh, Justice for Joggers here, $5. My question is, despite being uh, supposed followers of Christ, why are Catholics most likely to become furries and femboys? Well, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know if that's correct, but I do appreciate that. There is a, a very interesting... Uh, anime avatar community online uh but yeah I, I don't know that that's uh that's accurate I feel like there are plenty of uh people following that lifestyle with uh different different religious affiliations uh let's see uh indy here for ten dollars uh thanks oren uh for hosting uh paul paul your recent stream on scott adams was excellent sadly it'll it, it uh or sadly it'll it It'll be May. Okay. May. And as yet another example of how riches can lead to apex atomization. I'm not familiar with that stream. So maybe you can uh, enlighten us a little bit. Yeah. Well, Scott Adams had a, um, one day he came on very depressed, was talking suicidally. The next day he comes on because he quit, he switched his beta blockers. Part of what's been, what part of what I've been working on my channel is, is how, is how, together we are sort of figuring out our world through you know you, yourself and myself too included perhaps online characters commenting on the world i think as human beings we always do this this has happened in churches it has happened from kings and scott adams is 
just another one of those guys. He's got some interesting ideas. In fact, the video I made this afternoon for tomorrow has more of him on there. He's a smart guy. But um, if you look at his worldview, it's kind of sad. And, you know, feel for the guy. And, you know, I, I always tell people that I am a religious believer and a political skeptic. I don't think every four years we go through this drama of thinking that some new leader we put into office is going to save us and not one has. And so I'm a Christian. I believe, I believe we have one King. His name is Jesus and he died to save us. So that's, I, I, I don't know why people are surprised when I say things like that, but that's what I believe. We have glow in the dark here for $5 says, uh, Dim, uh, Dim's Christians can't vote for representation that isn't very Christian. They want to allow minority religions to impose upon the majority. I'm not quite sure I decipher that correctly, go in the dark. I mean, you might be saying that left-wing Christians are often more interested in venerating other religions than perhaps voting for people who represent their own uh, their own values in, in that scenario. And I think that's probably right. Again, uh, I, I think it might be a little bit of that Christian imperialism that Paul was talking about, where the Christianity gets separated from maybe some of the actual Christian teaching. And then you have the value of protecting, you know, and treating, you know, the other well, but with separated from, you know, the actual context of like within Christian values and within an actual uh, structure of the church, but uh, I don't know if, if Paul has that one's a little hard to decipher. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that one. I, I think people who feel themselves comfortably um, secure in their position by virtue of some uh, values of diversity and globalization might think it's really wonderful to have, let's say, someone from an Islamic country be their representative. Now, I think they will think that's good if they're a certain kind of Muslim and not another kind of Muslim. And in the United States, this, as I said before, sort of this um, watered down religiosity that is really has a lot of implicit Christianity and values in it. People say, oh yeah, you can be a Muslim as long as you're sort of like a Christian Muslim. <laughs> so then when someone comes in really with their full-blown religion, people are going to be like, I, I didn't I didn't want to take driver's licenses away from women. You know, nobody's looking to have Saudi Arabia be imposed in New York City. Yeah, there is there is a it is really difficult for people to grasp. And, and you know, this is part of what again Tom Holland's you know book was about. Really hard for people to grasp entirely different moralities. Like it's it's very much, you know, they are fish that don't know they're wet. They just don't know that there's another world in which you know, people are entirely different and, and your, your assumptions are based very severely in Christianity. And if you try to take them into another uh, tradition, into another faith, uh, you'll quickly find out that those things are not obvious. They are not self-evident. Uh, if there's one thing the founders got wrong, uh, it's that they didn't say self-evident if you happen to be Christian, uh, because I guess everyone they're writing to is Christian. But People don't seem to understand that, that that's a really essential uh, part of that context there. And uh, yeah, I think I think you're right that you know, Democrats just assume that every person coming over will have they'll share those values at the end of the day. Uh, and so it's fine if you can vote them in or have them, you know, dominate an area. And that's that's not a problem because at the end of the day, they'll just they'll join the universal church of, of progressivism and you don't have to worry about it. 
Uh, Glow in the dark here. Uh, Two dollars. Secularism a lie. People push their values. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the the kind of cartoon version of secularism that a lot of people have is obviously a lie. The idea that there's this value neutral space, uh, you know, neutral institutions that are not going to have any of that stuff. But again, I we've talked about that one ad nauseum, so don't want to have to belabor that one too much. Uh, let's see. I think there's at least one more down here. Uh, Max, uh, Maxwell Bliss for $5. What does Rene Gerard have to add to this conversation? Unfortunately, I have not, uh, re uh read Gerard, uh, but I know it's, uh, you know, lots of people in the circles have, uh, are you familiar with the work at all? Yeah, I'm somewhat familiar with Gerard. It's a, it's a complex argument, um, about around scapegoats that you can derive unity around a scapegoat. Oh, and, I've heard this. Yes, yes, and then Christianity sort of sort of overturns that, both both uses it and overturns it. Hmm. Um, but Girard's idea of mimetic desire is, yeah, I think it's, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Um, I I don't know how much it factors into this conversation, um, but I'm sure I'm sure he has, I'm sure Maxwell Bliss has an idea and an application, <laughs> but can't get it from the super chat. Yeah. Uh, Bucks fan 77 for $2 having a rough time there, man. Sorry about that. Uh, Protestantism is the beginning of the West downfall. Well, you know, so here's the thing. And, and I understand this argument. A lot of people have made this again. We get the, we get the Curtis Yarvin, you know, uh, tracing this through everything. Uh, this is the same thing as people who tell me like Christianity was the West downfall. It's like, okay, except like Christianity is the West and sorry, but Protestantism was basically most of what you understand about the West. Most of the things that you grew up with, all the traditions you're steeped in, they're they're deeply Protestant. I mean, some of you have been Catholic, cradle Catholics and you live in Catholic countries. I know this isn't just a U U.S. Uh, based audience, so I don't want to apply that to everybody. But if you're if you're speaking in an American contest, especially, this is just not true. Like, it, it, I understand what you're saying, and it is you're right that there are things. Of, every system breaks down. At some point, everything falls apart and things will always have structural weaknesses or things that they're more susceptible to. So is wokeness a Christian heresy? Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. Like, and does it have very clear, can you draw lines from Protestant Christianity to wokeness? Yeah, 100%. But again, saying that that's the downfall of the West is again, like saying Christianity is the downfall of the West. Sorry, but I just don't buy that. Like you, everything you like about the West you're, you're some some of you might be authentically pagan but the majority of you are not most of you are grounded very deeply in a christian tradition many of you are grounded very deeply in a protestant version of that tradition uh and it is the it is, it is that that has produced the things that you like about the culture that you live in so agreed all right uh so glow in the dark here for five dollars again thank you very much sir Paul, what is your view on Sam Harris and the experts controlling and advising how leaders should lead? Yeah, this was the, uh, I'm sure you saw, I didn't see any video. I'm, you may have touched on it with your videos, but uh, Sam Harris and his, his uh, you know, the, the leaders have to listen to experts all the time. If What could happen if for a moment people didn't worship at the altar of, uh, of college educated, uh, you know, managers? Uh, what do you think about him and that kind of development inside the new atheist movement or whatever's left of it at this point? I think they are um, blissfully ignorant of human nature. People, I, I, I said recently on Twitter, um, new atheism as a 
new atheism will never get a lot further than usually a bunch of um, young men. <laughs> it's it, when you look at when you look at the kinds of religions that are capturing the imagination of the country, it's going to look a lot more like Kim Kardashian than Sam Harris, or a lot more like Oprah. So it's it's just not a it's just not a religious tradition that 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 really gets to go far because other people aren't people just aren't wired that way i think clay rutledge in his book supernatural clay rutledge who is himself an atheist just notes that when people give up their formal religious views they tend to sort of imbibe a whole bunch of ad hoc folk religious superstitious ideas to make life work everything happens for a reason i mean there there's whole lots of cliches um you know i think the united states has tried to well it, it's a again it's a representative democracy people's values are voted into the government and the way democracies keep peace is by at least trying to give the majority what they want and having a civil exchange of power rather than violent revolutions. And um, governments are, are always going to try to satisfy their constituencies. That's how they're designed to work. So creepy, uh, creeper weirdo for $5. <laughs> See, this is what you get to stick around for the super chats, Paul. Uh, but it's a good question. How would you guys suggest creating Christian art without going full God's not dead asking for a friend? Uh, so I would say this. I think there are people who do create uh, good art that is Christian in essence, but is not, you know, beating you over the head with it and doing it in a very awkward and stilted way. I had the band Judicator on, and I think they're an excellent battle, uh, metal band. They're all very talented people. They write a lot of uh, albums that are historically based, and they tend to be based around uh, periods that are very heavily heavily Christian. The singer himself is a, is a newly converted Christian. And so a lot of those values get communicated because I think they're speaking very authentically. Something that the distributors, I think, harps on and does a really good job of is you know, how desperate we are for authentic understandings. And the problem is that even when we get a movie like, uh, you know, The Northman or, or something like Game of Thrones that comes up with like a radically different world, the people who are making it are just not fully committed because they don't really believe in the values. They don't really inhabit kind of the culture that those films are trying to portray. And so I think there is a way that you can bring those stories forward or you know that music or the you know that art forward and authentically bring something of a tradition and a lifestyle and a morality and a belief that is that is compelling for people and i think if you can do that then you can make art that doesn't have to be christian you know it doesn't have to be you know uh super hokey you know um oh, what's that guy from the the 80s tv show uh, the actor, I can't remember his name down. He did all those left behind movies. Uh, oh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, but, um, uh, but, uh, you don't have to make art like that to, for it to be Christian art. I think you can make art that is, you know, communicating something true about life that is related to Christianity. And that will be far more compelling than something that is just manufactured to have, you know, Bible versus, you know, a sermon at the end. 
there's a there's a good video why are christian movies so bad and basically the heart of that video is basically it's a violation of sphere sovereignty they're trying right. to act like protestant preachers one of the one of the greatest christian artists of the 20th century was jrr tolkien mm. and he created a world you know the you know the most popular english language book you have to set aside the bible and you know a bunch of religious books but you know just an enormous an enormous book um an enormous cultural force that tolkien did and now obviously what again one of the shocking things about the lord of the rings is that there's no religion in that world which is which is just absolutely mysterious because if you go to any medieval-ish point in history it's deeply religious. So what did what did Tolkien manage to do? That's one of the greatest pieces of Christian art that you know we've seen in the modern era. And look at look at what he did. And you, just have artists do art, not preachers. You know, um, uh, you, the I love the meme about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, right? Like, and C.S. Lewis is one of my very favorite authors, probably my favorite. But but I love that you know uh, you know Tolkien. Like, I'm going to shroud this in many layers of story and mystery, and then it's you know it's Lewis screaming, "The lion is Jesus Christ!" You know, that's <laughs> that's one of my favorite. Uh, not not much for subtlety there sometimes, but, but well, although there's um oh shoot, I can't think of its name, but basically. Somebody's written a really interesting book arguing that the Narnia Chronicles actually revolve around, you know, the planets, uh, planet, mm -hmm. planet Narnia. Fascinating book. Lewis, hmm. Lewis could be subtle when he wanted to. And oh, sure. Interesting if you, stuff. If you haven't read Till We Have Faces. Um, yes, it, yes. That, like far and away my favorite Lewis work. Yeah. And because it is subtle in so many ways, it's a. Yeah touches on some very deep things in very, very interesting ways. Uh, so uh, conquest theory for $5. Excellent discussion. These conversations need to be had as people come to grips with the end of liberalism and the myth uh, of the neutral secular state. Yeah. I mean, again, something I harp on very regularly, Paul has talked about, I think our very first discussion was about modernity and kind of the, the, the kind of collapse of the idea of secularism uh, and its utility in the long run. So a theme both of us have been touching on for, for quite a long time. Glow in the dark here. Uh, can we get a prayer at the outro? Uh, well, I don't think we want to do performative prayer. There's, there's something in the Bible about that, but maybe Paul can leave us with a, with a good passage or something, maybe something he's been preaching on recently here. We can pick his brain on that before we go. Uh, uh, PBK for $10 Canadian. Uh, no question. Just appreciate smart religious people. We'll check out Paul's channel. Oh, well, thank you very much. And yeah, absolutely. Everyone uh, should be checking out Paul's channel again. Uh, he, he does just a constant barrage of videos. I was talking to him beforehand. I don't know how he does it, but, uh, but it's great. And all of them are, are very interesting. Uh, you'll also find him guesting on other people's channels as well, having great discussions. So you should definitely be checking that out. Um, Heath here for $5. I wasn't accusing Paul of idolatry in my first chat, by the way. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we were confused on that, but I thank you for your clarification, Heath. I was uh, talking about American normie conservatives. Yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, I think we understood that, but I appreciate your clarification there. Uh, Maxwell Bliss for $2. Does Kanye add anything to this conversation? I feel like Kondre, Kanye has added plenty to the conversation on many podcasts. Uh, but this one is still up on YouTube, so probably not. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, 
Frijort Roosevelt. Is that the right way to say that? I'm not sure. Uh, Ten dollars to my favorite YouTubers in one place. Congratulations, guys. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, hopefully, yeah, we have the the crossover you'd been hoping for. Uh, hopefully that that uh, has worked out for you. All right, so I think we made it through all of those there. Uh, Paul, I've, like I've said many times, you got your your links below there. Is there anything you're working on? Anything coming out people look forward to that you'd like to direct them towards? Or do you have some parting words you'd like to leave with our audience here? My my channel is dramatically without a plan in terms of its <laughs> content. I You get whatever I'm thinking about the day of. And then Rando's conversations, just conversations with people who, who want to talk to me. It's not always easy to get a slot, but I, I like doing that. Um, I've got my estuary project, which is trying to encourage people to have better open-ended conversations and encourage churches to host better conversations with people who are sort of all over the map on in various different ways. So those are the, the things that I work on. Excellent. All right. It looks like we got one more in here. We'll grab before we go guys, we are going to end it. Thank you for the super chats, but we do need to move on. I appreciate that though. Uh, George W. Hey Duke for $20. Thank you very much. Uh, faith as, uh, as tool of state will, this is what, uh, state Shinto was, uh, Dissent against the state made into blasphemy. State Shinto is a primary factor in why uh, endemic faith in Japan is now gone. Faith cannot be pageantry for your politics. I think that's right. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, maybe wokeness is so frigid, right? It feels like it fractures almost right away uh, because it, it's a faith manufactured exactly for that purpose, right? And so it um, it has no other real purpose except for creating political power and generating hierarchy and, and dominating your opponents, which is useful for a time. It, it has a season, but like I said, like Paul was saying, I, I think um, separating the eternal from the now, you know, they're, they're, those things are not going to last in the long run. And so, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're all going to have to suffer through it for a while, but I, I don't think, I don't think it's here to stay. Um, if if only because it eventually will eat uh, everything it can consume uh, on its way down. All right, guys. Well, uh, like Paul said, he's got all those different projects for you to check out all those links. Make sure you do so. Thank him again for coming on. want to thank a few people for sponsoring the channel just real quick. Uh, Easter Worshipper, appreciate your support, sir. Uh, Cowering Bugman, thank you very much. Let's see here. We have uh f1f00c09 thank you for your support we've got uh santa that's right the big man uh, supports this channel uh, i know we got the the beard on here so you might be confused but in this case santa is a, is a supporter of the channel uh we've got jonathan anomaly thank you very much sir and let's see i think that's everybody all right, guys, make sure that if this is your first time here, you are subscribing. If you'd like to follow my work on alt tech channels, I've got the links for Rumble and Odyssey below, Gab, Twitter, all that stuff. Um, I'll be putting out the exclusive sub, uh, video for Subscribestar and uh, Substack supporters. So uh, that's going to come out for this month here in the next couple of days. So if you want to get that, you can check that out over there. And then uh, if you want to subscribe to the Substack, I posted the last chapter of the Total State there that was all about carl schmidt so you can check that out as well thanks for coming by guys and as always i'll talk to you next time <laughs>